Well, good morning. Um, good to be here, kids. I'm going to read the gospel reading, and then I'm going to need your help with something, okay? So our gospel reading is from Matthew 4, uh, verses 12 to 22. Matthew writes, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, kids, come here. I need um, everyone everyone under, I don't know, whatever age you want to pick, 15, 25, whatever. Okay? Okay, all right. If, if, you have, if you have your stickers, please go down. Go down, go down, go down. All right, there you go. On to the blue. What? You got two pages of stickers, so here's what I need you to do. I want you guys to go around, and everybody in this room, except maybe Clara, um, needs to have a sticker, okay? You give them whatever color you think fits their aura, all right? Whatever, you look at them and you go, oh, you're a green for sure. You're a pink. You can put it on their hand. You can put it on their bulletin. Put it on their glasses. Um, okay, everybody gets a sticker, and we're going to talk about it here in just a minute. So when I was in high school, when I was a sophomore and then a junior in high school, I had two different history teachers. Both of them at the time were pretty important to me. The first, his name was Mr. Petty. I looked him up on my old high school website. He is still a teacher at LCLN High School. Um, and... Uh, <clears throat> He taught, I, he taught me European history, uh, sophomore in high school. And he was kind of, he was also the rugby coach, um, football coach. We actually had a weirdly good rugby team. Um, and he was kind of, today, he would have been canceled pretty quickly. Uh, he was edgy and kind of bombastic. And, and, and really, we were, I lived in the North Bay in Santa Rosa. So, like, you know, not an especially red county, right, Sonoma County. Um, and, but he was out there. This was kind of the Bush era. Um, he was pretty conservative and all this stuff. And he kind of, he liked being in the room where he was the, the odd one out, right? He sort of had this, like, contrarian personality and, and everything. And then the next year, so that's kind of the take I got on European history, um, which covers a lot of, you know, communism and World War II and all of that kind of thing. And then the next year, I go to uh, Miss Libertor's class, and she was 
exactly the opposite. She was liberal and open and accepting and everyone there. But she would really push us, and it was U.S. history. You guys good? We got our stickers? Everybody got one. Don't give two stickers or you might confuse people. Okay? And then you, out of the generosity of my heart and the thrift, which is the dollar store, can keep the rest of those stickers. Okay? Um, Libertor was pretty, like I said, kind of exactly the opposite. Liberal, open, accepting. Um, and her take, we read Howard Zinn, The People's History of the United States, uh, we, which was like, you know, the complete opposite perspective politically. Um, and I'm, you know, 15 to 16, maybe a little bit of 17 years old at the time. And it was really fascinating for me because it became very clear <laughs> that there were camps in the world. Right, that you could sort of read the world through a certain lens. And I'd come home and we'd talk about it with my parents, and I'd usually get into arguments with my dad one way or the other. Um, and it was, it was very clear that there were perspectives, that there were takes, that there were these kinds of ways that you could make the evidence work for you or against you. In large part, we were even covering the same period of history. It was the same time and space, right? but totally different sets of information. And I liked both Petty and Liberator. I actually still like both Petty and Liberator. I look back at them as pretty important people to me. I still remember a lot from those classes. I learned a lot in those classes. And I was probably a little bit of a chameleon because I wanted to present, I wanted to kind of impress each of them. And so it was like, let me you know, present to you whatever understanding of the world you see. And that's not really the worst thing in a class, I don't think. But when I moved away from high school, I had to start to ask the questions of who am I going to be, right? Which camp am I going to fall into? Whose take am I going to bite? I started to ask different questions, like what's something that I can give my life to? What are the things of God that call me into a particular kind of life. And neither of those teachers actually spoke. I probably I actually got a lot more guff for being a Christian in Petty's class than in Libertor's class. Because for a lot of us, and for so many people, we think that history and the way that we interpret history more or less explains the world. Right? That if we can get our sort of side in the culture war figured out, if we know how we feel about particular issues and where we break on this side or that side of a particular hot-button thing, then all of a sudden we know who we belong to. We know who our people are, right? Oh, you get bonus points. You realize I'm in the room and I'm not Clara, so I need a sticker too. Good. Um, yeah. <laughs> Right? It's a lot like, I mean, let's see, all the greens who we know are best, go ahead and hold your hand up if you're a green, right? Green, got it. Like the greens, obviously, look around at who the greens are. This is the team that you want to be on, right? Where's the yellows? Okay, all right, yeah. I, I get it. I, see, I know who you are. I know who you are. And the pinks? Oh, man. I didn't expect the pinks to come out so strong. You guys were... Some of you, do you notice I did nothing, and some of you are like, oh, I, I'm a yellow. Don't talk 
about the yellows. Don't talk about the pinks. Like, that's, these are my people. You probably never even talked to each other. You've been in this room for weeks. And all of a sudden, somebody puts a sticker on your hand, <laughs> and you belong to them, right? You notice how we do that as people? We get plugged into camps. And oftentimes, it's stupid or irrelevant stuff. But we belong, and because we belong, and I'm sure we could do a bigger social experiment, keep these stickers on, and over the next three, four weeks, you all be sitting in separate parts of the sanctuary. And we have to take the hymnals out because you're throwing them at each other or whatever. <laughs> this, this is kind of what we do. There's something in human nature that wants to say, who are my people? How can I connect? can I connect to them? How can I belong to them? And then there's a couple of you that are like, I'm going to do exactly the opposite. I'm going to be so different. And Paul, speaking to this church in Corinth, does a really interesting thing. He calls out the camps. He's talking to this church, and, and in his language, he uses the language of baptizing. Right? Baptizing in a name. That when you are baptized, you take on something about the name in which you are baptized. So one of the things that baptized, we think of as this super religious word. It's not. It's just a word that means dip. And, and it's actually the word that you, if you were going to dye a piece of cloth, okay, if you had like a raw white piece of linen or cotton or wool, if you're going to dye it a different color, you've got to take it and baptize it into a bowl that has that color. And sometimes you've got to dunk it in once, and it comes out, and it's kind of light blue. So you've got to dunk it in again, and then it's you know darker, maybe a little bit darker. And then you really hold it down until it gets its color deep in the fibers of that cloth. And what Paul is saying to his people in Corinth, this church that he loves, is you have begun to be counted with the name of your teacher rather than the name of your Lord. And so you, this kind of raw, bare cloth, have allowed yourself, Miriam, what? <laughs> She's covered in stickers <laughs> all over her face. All right. You, you've been counted with the name of your teacher. You've allowed yourself to get caught up in the color of your sticker. You've allowed yourself to get dunked into this dye so that you're blue or purple or red or pink. And you come up looking like your teacher and claiming your teacher and saying, this is who I am. Meanwhile, where are the people who are seeking, who are knowing, who are worshiping the Lord, who are baptized in his name, in his identity? The Roman world that Paul was working in and that the Corinthians lived in was a world that wasn't a whole lot different from ours. People moved up the ladder. There was this vast kind of marketplace of ideas. You could be a, some of the, the names of people where you could be a Stoic or a Cynic or an Epicurean, right? These are all words we kind of know, but they have their root in Paul's culture. This is how you face life's troubles. This is how you face life's difficulties. The Stoic said you face it with as little response as possible. Because maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, you don't know. Right? Epicurean said, 
just eat and drink and get as happy as you can because we're all going to die. Right? Just love life. Love the good stuff. Love the weekend. Live for the weekend. And what would happen is people would, um, I know this is going to sound really super crazy and weird to you, but, but people would get their ideas and they would want to share their ideas with people. And so they would go out into the marketplace and they might even get a little box or something and they would stand up on this box and they would speak their messages. And people would listen to them like, boy, is it interesting to listen to this person? Do I like how they talk? Do they, do they attract me or something like that? And so as they are speaking these messages, they would start to gain these audiences. That's kind of like YouTube followers, right? So that everywhere they would go, their channel would be there, and, and people would be like, oh, man, here's Diogenes, and I need to go hear what Diogenes has to say. And Diogenes, he would, carry, he would do crazy things, like carry around a lamp in the middle of the day and um, show up with a dog next to him. I mean, they would do these kind of wild stunts. Why? To get attention to get followers, to get listeners. And then slowly as they would build these audiences, sometimes they would turn that into, okay, now I've got all these people. I'm a preacher. I've got all these people who listen to me. Now I'm going to find the rich person who needs their kid to be tutored. And so now I'm going to go live a life as a tutor to some rich person's kid because I've demonstrated and built enough of a following that I've got something to say, right? So when Paul, this is why that matters, when Paul comes into Corinth and starts preaching about Jesus, this Jewish Messiah who was crucified and raised again, and how it has all these kinds of implications for how we live and how we treat one another and how we love one another and how we ought to interact across ethnic and even sort of gender lines, I mean, all of this stuff. The people of Corinth here, He's trying to build an audience. And he wants us to be his follower. So we're going to come follow him, and then he's somehow going to turn that into the rest of his sort of career. Paul is very clear that that's not what he's doing, but that's what the people hear. That's what the people see. And even worse, and I know you've never seen this in Christianity, even worse, the people with the most money think that they get to tell Paul what he's supposed to say, <laughs> right? The people who give the most to him are like, well, this is kind of how we want this church thing to go. And Paul's thought is, okay, nice to hear, but that's not what drives the ship here. How quickly we see in Paul's language what I mean, this is uh, verse 12. What I mean is that each, of, each one of you says, well, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos, another Christian teacher. I follow Cephas, that's Peter. I follow Christ. And then the line that's been haunting me all week, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Christ is not divided. Nobody but Christ was crucified for you. How quickly we dot wearers become consumed with his interpretation. 
how quickly we become identified with the teacher over the Lord. Denominations are kind of an old school way of doing this, right? Nazarene, Baptist, Lutheran, right? That's how it used to be. You'd walk into a town and you'd look for the church that had the name you knew on the door. We were kind of like way past that now. That's not really how things work too much anymore. We're kind of in this, this state now of being trans-denominational where we look for the teacher that we know or we don't even go to church. We just follow. We just listen to somebody online because their teaching sort of connects with us or means something to us. And a lot of churches, we, we play into this because we kind of lean into this idea with this mindset that says, well, if people are just going to look for the teaching that works the best for them, then let's produce the teaching that works the best for them. And we make decisions about who we are and who we ought to be based off of branding and marketing rather than truth. Many of us attach ourselves to a preacher or a theology that puts things in a way that we understand. And like I said, not you because you're here listening to me, but a lot of people will even leave their local church to connect with that space. And this is why discipleship becomes so incredibly difficult in our world. Because we're constantly needing to balance two things truth or proclamation, what we say, and formation, who we become. Is the teacher that we're listening to, are they speaking the truth about Christ? That's important, right? It's important that what we say is not just sort of off the wall, that it actually has a bounding, a bearing, a rooting in Scripture. That it's connected to what we actually know about God and most importantly, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. That is critical. But if we are so locked into truth, and I've seen some people get so locked into this idea of truth that what they miss is, I'm not simply here to know all the right things. I'm here to become the kind of person that Christ would have me become. And so, if I'm connected to somebody who says all these things that are true, but is so far from me that they can't actually bring me into a kind of formation under Christ, then I'm in trouble. In other words, if your Christian speaker or teacher or celebrity is too remote for you to actually know what their life looks like day to day, then they're not close enough be someone that you pattern your life after. And they're not close enough to actually speak into you. In Corinth, Paul did not hold himself far off. In fact, he was known in Corinth for being unimpressive and unconvincing. There are lines in the, in the epistles to the, uh, the Corinthians about how I know that when I come, you're not very impressed with how I talk. I write big, mean letters, you know, about all these things that you ought to do better. But then when I show up, you're like, oh, it's just Paul. He's fine. Right? There's no teeth in what he has to say. He was known for kind of the cracks in his character. He wasn't like a TV preacher that you would see 
with foundation and tanner and teeth all whitened. <laughs> Paul showed up and you saw Christ. And I'm convinced you saw Christ in that man. When we are baptized, we're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's God's name. It's who God is. It's who God is in the Christian church. When we're baptized, we take his mark. Not the mark of the pastor who baptizes us. Not the mark of the teacher whose books we've read the most. Not the mark of the teacher whose videos we've watched. No, it's not the mark of Paul or Apollos or Cephas. We take the mark of Christ. But we can't take the mark of a universal Christian. We just can't. When I became a Christian, when I was baptized, I became a Christian as a person in the culture that I was in, in the church that I was in, in the family that I was in. We grow in the soil that we're planted in, for better or for worse. That's all we got, right? I can't be a Mongolian Catholic. I just can't. That's one way of being a Christian, but it's way, way far from the place that I am. And so Paul even speaks to people who would say, well, I don't actually have like a local connection or a local body, right? He says, some, some of you say, I follow Paul. Some follow Apollos, some follow Cephas. And then he says, and some of you say, well, I follow Christ. <laughs> and doesn't that sound like the most holy of them? If you're going to pick one, well, you follow your teacher, but I follow The problem is when we have that whole thing of like, well, I'm just a Jesus follower, and I just follow Jesus wherever Jesus is, and Jesus is Jesus. Almost without exception, the people I've known, that's the way they express it, are disconnected from the local reality of discipleship. They use that idea of I follow Christ as this kind of thing that's up above the church. I'm not involved in the sort of messy garbage of local church politics and Sunday schools that argue with each other, people that make the same dish for the potluck and get frustrated and you know, pastors who don't do what they're supposed to do. There's a few of them. And then, you know, members who are being asked. I mean, all the kind of stuff that happens in the muck of a local church. Some of us just try to transcend that by saying, well, I just follow Christ wherever I go. And Paul's saying, look, on the one hand, you know, you can't attach yourself to a person, to a teacher, so much that you lose the Lord. But on the other hand, you can't get so disconnected from the local body, from the local soil that you live in, that you don't actually have a context. You don't have a place that you grow in Christ. For me, it's Lone Pine Church of the Nazarene, Lancaster New Life Church of the Nazarene, Santa Rosa Nazarene Church, Mid-City Naz, South Naz, True Light Naz, and then Cordova Naz. That's my pedigree. <laughs> You'll notice that they all pretty much end with the word Nazarene. Um, I have that particular flavor, right? It's who I am, um, and you may like it, you may not, but it's who I am. 
The tension in Corinth was such deep identification with the teacher who pastored or discipled, the body itself began to splinter. And this is, this is the heart of the thing I'm wrestling with here. Because for Paul, what's critical, and I know this is hard for a lot of us to hear, for Paul, what's so critical is not the Christian, it's the church. He looks at Corinth and he says, look, if you're divided, then Christ is divided. If you're split up based on your different and varying sort of allegiances, then there is a division in Christ. And that is so hard for us to hear because there's 8,000 churches in this neighborhood. And I don't know those Christians. <laughs> I, I don't really have a connection with them. I've never met the pastor of the church around the corner. And I can look at that and I can go, well, that's because I've got it right and they all missed it. And one day they'll get it, right? But the truth is, is that ought to break our hearts. It broke Paul's heart. And, and all Paul was looking at was one congregation that was sort of quarreling with each other. We're talking about thousands of congregations that don't even know each other enough to quarrel. I'd love to be able to fight with those brothers and sisters. But for the most part, we've become so comfortable with our divisions that we no longer even have the relationships necessary to quarrel. And this is where I think there are two big threats for us. If you're a note taker, this is the note to take. <laughs> two major threats to the church's unity. Thank you, Lord, for pulling that down. Uh, oh, I thought I was going to say it's because you're a green, but you're a yellow. Um, <laughs> Here's the two threats, essentialism and divisiveness. Okay, the first threat's divisiveness, and here's what it is. We get so locked into the fact that we have it right, that we know how to do it, and that anybody who doesn't know how to do it just needs to get pushed out. Right? Anybody who kind of misses it, anybody who misunderstands, anybody who interprets prophecy differently or kneels differently when they pray or kind of does things on a different time schedule, anybody who doesn't sort of fit our thing, they can just go start their own church. And so we divide and we divide and we divide until there are so many different versions of Christianity and we slowly begin to fade. We make every opinion and belief out to be absolutely critical to the gospel. There's a song by a singer, Sarah Groves. I've just... It gets stuck in my head. It's this super short song, three verses. Here it is. It's called To the Moon. Here's how it goes. It was there in the bulletin. We're leaving soon. After the bake sale to raise funds for fuel, the rocket is ready, and we're going to take our church to the moon. There'll be no one there to tell us we're odd, no one to change our opinions of God, just lots of rocks and this dusty sod here at our church on the moon. 
We know our liberties. We know our rights. We know how to fight a very good fight. Just get that last bag and turn out the light. We're taking our church to the moon. We're taking our church to the moon. We'll be leaving soon. And oh man, how often I've seen that. And how often I've been that. We just get further and further away from one another. We just kind of kind of just head off to the moon. I don't have to deal with the difficult things up there. On the other hand, there's a very real danger in our world that we, I think, is a little more who we are. And I'd, I'd call it essentialism, where we only care about the essentials. We have a phrase in, in our tradition in the Nazarene Church that says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And it's not a bad idea, right? I'm not going to look at another church preaches on something different this week and go, you missed it. It was supposed to be 1 Corinthians 1. You're out of here. Right? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And that is a great place to be until you try to nail down what the essentials are. And for most of us, and I'm being serious, it doesn't go much beyond the Bible is our standard for truth, and I believe that Jesus' death somehow atones for the sin of the world. We whittle down the essentials into something that's so narrow that it's hard to build anything off of it. People will call huge things huge things, non-essentials, so that they can have liberty to do and say and believe and live how they want. So in that case, our essentialism has become a tool not for liberty, but for kind of libertine or libertarian cries of get off my lawn with your theology. As we whittle down to nothing the essentials of the faith, we're left with just one more cultural camp. Historically, communion in the church was a meal that was open to the baptized. Why is that? Is that because we just love telling people that they can't come? Not at all. Not at all. It's so that we know what we're doing. So when the church says we are coming to this table together, there is clarity about what that actually means. There's clarity about what that actually professes, about what you're actually doing when you come to the table. If all we do is come to the table and go, well, I'm there because there was a line and I just stood in the line, right? And now I'm here and other people are eating, so I'm going to eat. The historical position was be initiated, become baptized so that you are aware of what it is, so that you're marked by that name, and then when we come to the table, we know what we're doing. Now, there were lots of other ways to including other people, even non-believers who were there at the service. There were lots of other ways to extend hospitality. But that particular thing 
was, had some fences around it. In our tradition, that's not how we do it. We don't base it around baptism. We do say that this is a meal for believers. This is a meal for people who believe that Jesus has saved them. Why? Again, not to exclude or to control, but because our temptation in our culture is not to be too inclusive. Did I say that right? I don't think I did. <laughs> our temptation in our culture is that we include so much that we start to say peace, peace where there is no peace. We start to look at the world and we go, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. We don't want to talk about it. And so the core idea here, again, is not how you lived this week. It's not whether you were a good boy or a bad boy or girl this week, right? That's not what we're saying. The point is not whether you have things in your life that need fixed. We all have things in our life that need fixed. The point is, do you know who fixes those things? And if you know the one who fixes those things, then yes, you're welcome to this table. And if not, please, let's have a conversation. I would love to talk to you about the one who fixes those things. Right? But the danger is that we begin to proclaim a false peace where there is not really peace. And that over-essentialism begins ultimately to divide and cut at the, at the unity of the church. It's not this desire to take our church to the moon, but it is a desire to not have a false unity that merely exists for the sake of appearances, while real division lurks underneath the surface. So what's true unity then? Because there's real brokenness in the church. What is true unity? I think what we Christians need to learn to do is to look at a Christian who disagrees with us and say, hey, you know what? We disagree. And I'm not going to break our friendship because we disagree, right? Look, we come down on different sides of the issue, and that's a real division. I'm not going to paper over that and pretend it doesn't matter like it doesn't exist. However, I'm going to do the hard work of staying in touch with you. I'm going to do the hard work of sending you a Christmas card. I'm going to do the hard work of getting together every now and then to make sure that we're in touch. I'm going to do the hard work of remaining affiliated with one another even when there are difficult things that sit and simmer underneath. Because ultimately, the only one who can bring the church back together into unity is not, it's not us and our brilliant strategy. It's the Holy Spirit. The only one who can reunite the church is not wonderful leadership, but it's Jesus himself. Here's the thing we can do. I'm going to propose to you one action, okay? One thing that you can do today, right now, this week, for the good of the unity of the church. 
And you don't just do it here. You don't just do it when you're on our property. You do it when you're home. You do it when you're out at the grocery store. You do it when you're out moving around at your kid's school or if you're a kid when you're at school. You do it everywhere you go. Okay, here it is. Ready? Listening? This is for the greens and the pinks and the yellows. Okay? Here's the action. And the greens. Yep. Submit. Hold on, Mir. Mir. Yeah, you got some colors on your on your nails, huh? You guys are on every team. I see that. I want you to submit. To submit. Submit to Jesus, yeah. Submit to a human being. One of the core sins of the human race is rebellion. And we will not be ready to submit to God's authority if we still harbor rebellion against our teachers, against our bosses, against our kids, against our parents, against our wife, against our husband. Submit to others as though that person is Christ. Not because they are Christ, but because when we attach ourselves to our minds working out what is right, we often are attaching ourselves to our pride. But when our first impulse is to say yes to the person who's in front of us, it leads us toward humility. Submission in love. I want to be clear here, I'm not talking about abuse, right? I'm not talking about go submit to somebody who wants to hurt or harm you. I'm saying submit to somebody who's asking you to do something annoying. <laughs> submit to somebody who's maybe coming at you at the wrong time or the wrong schedule or when you're in the wrong mood. And if you don't understand why, maybe we ask the question, why is it important to this person that I do this thing? Let me, ask, let me just ask them. Why is it important to this person that I stand up for them in this way? Just let me figure it out. It's all through the history of the church. It's all through the scriptures. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, submit to your wife. Parents, submit to your children. Children, submit to your parents. Pastors, submit to your church. Churches, submit to your pastor. Students, submit to your teacher. Teachers, submit to your students. Christians, submit to your neighbor. Neighbors, submit to one another. Friends and brothers and sisters and strangers, submit to one another in love. With the knowledge that Christ is bringing us into a unity that shows up when we release our needs to be the one in charge. And recognize that God is speaking to other people too. Letting that limitation expand us beyond our camps, our teams, our side in the culture war, our little colored dots that tell us who we are and who's on our side. I know this is strange advice. Kind of a strange exhortation today. And next week we're going to lean a lot more into the last line of Paul's verse here in 1 Corinthians 
lest the the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. But I hope that you'll be able to find a place, a person, somebody with skin on, as they say, to let guide and direct you in the way of Christ. Let me pray. Lord, I know, I know that it is hard to bring ourselves before you and lay down our rights, lay down what we want for ourselves, lay down our camps and our teams. And I know, Lord, we all know that it's even harder to do that to another person who is imperfect and fallible and broken and has cracks in their character. Lord, it's especially hard to do that when we've been hurt. When we've had our hearts broken. Many of us, Lord, have had that move even further into the the realm of intentional harm. But Lord, I trust that you desire to help heal and restore those parts of us. Would you give us opportunities this week to seek you, to know you, to love you, and to be restored by you, even in those tender places. Lord, we trust that by your Spirit, you will lead us safely into those places that we can be restored. And that you will lead us as a church to become one in you, so that we might actively hope for the unity of the whole church, which can only come to be in Jesus by his Spirit. 